UEG Talks, Gastroenterology to Go. Welcome to our GI podcast. Listen for fresh insights and perspectives in science, education, and professional development. Hello, all. Welcome to this episode of the UEG Talks. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Pradeep Mundre, and I'm your host for today. Now, today's episode is about approach to individuals with family history of colorectal cancer. And colorectal cancer is probably one of the common issues that I come across on a day-to-day, whether it's in the context of screening or prevention or surveillance. And in my daily practice, I often come across patients, whether in the outpatients when they present symptoms or when I'm doing procedures, when they do mention about history, family history of colorectal cancer. And often I'm not really sure how to approach such patients. I mean in terms of their risk or uh, how to approach in terms of surveillance, whether we should offer them or not. I mean, I'm talking about those patients who who do not have hereditary syndromes, such as Lynch syndrome or familial adenomatous polyposis. I often find it easy in such patients because they're they're clear guidelines. Uh, But for those who don't, I seem to struggle in my approach. Uh, And I often find it very confusing to remember the advice and the guidelines. And amongst clinicians, we're probably guilty in a very inconsistent approach in dealing with such patients. I feel that there's a lot of missed opportunities in recognizing such individuals. And sometimes probably there's an over-exaggeration of the risk leading on to unnecessary procedures. Now, the focus of the discussion today is primarily on such individuals as in how to approach uh, such patients with family history of colorectal cancer who do not already have an established diagnosis of inherited syndromes, such as uh, familial adenomatous polyposis or Lynch syndrome. Now, today's guest is Dr. Kevin Monaghan, consultant gastroenterologist at St. Mark's Hospital London and uh, one of the leading figures in hereditary colorectal cancers. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today. We are so pleased to have you as a guest. Thank you very much, Pradeep. Good to be here. So, Kevin, uh, to start off with, can you tell us a little bit about your journey from being a young doctor to being such an influential person in hereditary colorectal cancers? Uh, well, thank you very much. I guess although this is a common problem, it's still an area where there, it's still, a, as a profession, it's probably still quite a niche and uh, it's a niche I had developed an interest in during medical training when I studied a family from where I'm from in Ireland where there was a history of polyps and cancer running through the family to try and understand why it was happening and um, I found it very interesting you know because normally I suppose in our practice we deal with individuals and uh, although we take account of family history I found the idea of getting to know different individuals in a family and um, managing their care over their lifetime just really incredibly interesting and the dynamics in families are so hugely variable and what you consider normal is largely based on your own experience of you know growing up and actually you know the, the there are families where there are people i know who are siblings and they don't know about each other um they don't know each, each other exists even um and you know and there are other families which are you know, very, very close and, and um, you know, and it's just very interesting working with people. And because it is a niche, there aren't so many people maybe who are very focused in this area. 
And therefore, there are many opportunities to um, optimise care and to think about what could be done to achieve that. So it's been very stimulating for me through my career to work in this area because I feel like um, there are lots of solutions that are just sitting there waiting to be kind of delivered on. And, um, you know, also appreciating that this is a relatively common problem that um, lots of people have a family history of cancer and bowel cancer is a common disease and therefore having a family history of bowel cancer is common. It's not always due to something running in the family. But um, trying to make sense of that, I think, is, um, you know, there are some simple kind of tips and tricks that can be applied to make uh, make sense of that. Oh, we expect you to make things very simple for us, Kevin, today. <laughs> Niche indeed, definitely. And, you know, for a gastroenterologist to have uh, this particular specialty is, is very rare. And I, when I found the main interest in this, I was fascinated and I thought you were the best person to, to invite you for this discussion. So, Kevin, let's start with the prevalence of this problem, as in family history of colloquial cancer. How common do you think it is, you know, sort of broader sense? Well, if colorectal cancer, bowel cancer affects about four to five percent of women and about you know six percent of men it's, it's a common disease that you know affects one in 20 individuals and um in theory if you have if you take 20 people from any family there'd probably be one person who has colorectal cancer over their lifetime uh if it was entirely random but you know and what we do know though if you if you actually look at families and you look how many families have a first degree relative with colorectal cancer or a second degree relative with colorectal cancer, it's about nine to ten percent of first degree relative, which means uh, a parent or a sibling or a child, and about uh, another twenty percent have a second degree relative. So that's about just uh, almost thirty percent of families where there's a first or a second degree relative with colorectal cancer. And you know, although that makes it relatively common, you know, if you take the UK population of whatever sixty five million, whatever it is. That's more than 20 million people with a family history of colorectal cancer. And, you know, it's a lot of people. Therefore, it's a common condition or a common situation, rather. But what, what does that actually mean practically? Well, a, a lot of that family history is, is not due to a genetic trait running through the family or necessarily an increased genetic risk. But, you know, it can be incorporated into our risk modeling also, many of those people with a family history, those, those diagnoses are due to random events that occur in families. You know, there may be random genetic events that account for quite a lot of cancer, as well as environmental risk. And um, sometimes when you have more than one case in a family, it might be because of shared environment. Uh, you know, it may not be due to genetic traits, but in, in reality, it's, it is a little complicated. There's a lot of overlap. And people don't get cancer for just just because of environmental reasons or just because of genetic reasons, really, except in very you know very extreme situations. Most cancers occur because of a mixture of all these reasons, and um, and therefore when you take family history, it forms part of your risk assessment. And you know the other the other way of looking at it is actually what's the benefit of scoping people with family history or offering other interventions? I mean, predominantly it's about choosing when or how to colonoscope or whether or not to colonoscope it's not the only thing but it's the main kind of decision point that we make as gastroenterologists probably and um you know there are ways of trying to kind of stratify that risk for, for what is a common situation 
Right. So when you talk about stratification, um, can you give us your thoughts on what is your threshold to define an increased risk, I guess, of uh, colorectal cancer in those patients? How, how do you, what do you consider as an increased risk compared to general population? So what is more sort of significant, I mean, in terms of surveillance? Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, I would say that there's pretty much no one who has 0% risk and risk is a gradient. Uh, and therefore, some people are all, we're all along a spectrum of risk for all these common diseases, you know, including diabetes and heart disease and colorectal cancer being another common disease. But the way the way to simplify it down is: is the risk significantly higher than someone who has a, an average lifetime risk in the population, uh, and by how much? And so, in BSG and ESG guidelines, essentially, we're, we've identified a population of people who have risk which is around about doubled so the lifetime risk is about 10 percent or more and compared to five percent of the population and when that risk is 10 percent or more the other thing we're interested in is what's the mitigation of colonoscopy colonoscopic surveillance and you can look then at the studies that where colonoscopy has been offered to people with family history and you can see how many advanced adenomas or how many colorectal cancers are identified when you offer surveillance and if you're, not, if you're not actually finding anything more, although the lifetime risk of colorectal cancer is higher, then actually maybe colonoscopy isn't really necessarily the right answer. Or maybe that it's not been offered at the right age. So you kind of want to know what age do people get more advanced adenomas or colorectal cancers where there's family history. So you can risk stratify on the basis of the type of family history. Um, we know that if someone has one first degree relative diagnosed before the age of 50, or if they have two first-degree relatives diagnosed to any age in a cluster in the family, so that you know we can kind of outline that in more detail in a moment, then that lifetime risk for, for that individual is around about doubled. And we know that if you offer colonoscopy to people with that family history, we find more or less twice as many advanced adenomas, typically from around the age of 50 onwards. And um, if you offer colonoscopy before 50, you don't tend to find anything more. So the, the risk of cancer really and people with this kind of family history starts to increase from around about 50. That's when they start to benefit from colonoscopy. In fact, the risk of cancer is probably a little bit later. It's more of the advanced adenomas that are more likely to occur around the age of 50, increase in, in prevalence onwards. So, and then when you get you know, a stronger family history, you, you might start colonoscopy a bit earlier because you may get you know, more advanced adenomas earlier and the lifetime risk of cancer is, is greater. And that might be families where there are three people in the family who've had colorectal cancer, for example. I was going to come on to that question as in, you know, people, when you, individuals, you meet them in your clinic or your endoscopy list and they mention about family history, then uh, my question was, you know, what information should trigger further questioning or detailed family history? The way you're saying is that, yeah, if they mention, you go in detail straight away and then ask ask more questions, uh, judging based on what you've mentioned already. Yeah, I mean, I would say if someone says that their parent had colorectal cancer when they're in their 60s, then probably that doesn't really significantly increase that individual's risk of colorectal cancer to the point where by you would offer additional, you know, there's, there's usually in most countries there are national screening programs and that's probably appropriate for them. Now, just depend partially on what system health system people work in and some health systems you know there are there's a lower threshold for offering additional you know colonoscopy for example in the us 
um, people are offered additional colonoscopy and they have screening from an earlier age. And that is, you know, down to a number of factors. Resources would be one of those factors, but not the only one. And, um, and we all was rationalize what we do in our own health systems to an extent. But I think w- one of the key things that we try to focus on with our guidelines is it's not really resources. It's about what is actually going to benefit that patient. What do we know about the benefit of colonoscopy? And uh, if the risk is slightly increased, do we actually know that the colonoscopy you know, perform differently compared to what how it's offered in the screening program for you know for the entire population. What do we know that that, that offering additional colonoscopy is going to be helpful? Uh, and we know that probably it is where there's where they report that their parents had colorectal cancer, you know, in their forties, or that they had a parent who was in their sixties and the parents, you know, parents or the parents' brother or sister, for example. So there are two people in the family. And we know that those families, that what we do with colonoscopy is more likely to benefit them. Kevin, at, at this stage, when you've started talking about family history, I guess the main question is how to filter out patients who we feel they should be referred for genetic testing. You know, I mean, I guess definition of Lynch syndrome or Lynch syndrome type patients. So what is it in the family history that you should say, okay, fine, these are the patients I would refer for genetic testing. So what are the criteria that you would use in clinical practice? Well, one of the things that we do in the UK and in some countries, not everywhere, is once someone is referred with a family history of colorectal cancer, we try and see if that relative has had a test of some sort for Lynch syndrome. Because actually, that is an additional layer of risk assessment that is really valuable. Because we think that most cancer that runs in families, the most common cause is Lynch syndrome. And by testing the tumour with immunohistochemistry or uh, microsatellite instability testing, we can essentially rule out a diagnosis of Lynch syndrome where the testing is normal. And we can reassure individuals that they probably don't have a very high risk trait running through the family. So that's kind of an important layer that we can offer. And conversely, if that test is abnormal, then that individual perhaps, you know, that, that family may benefit from additional genetic testing because they might have Lynch syndrome if the test is abnormal, of course. Most of the time it won't be, but if it is, then they, then they, they need further kind of genetic assessment. Now, that is only going to be the case in exceptions in people with a kind of moderate family history that I've mentioned, those with a one relative under 50 or those with two relatives. Where you get people where there are three affected individuals in the family, the likelihood of this tumour test being abnormal is really much higher. And that's because more of those families are likely to occur because of uh, um, Lynch syndrome, which is, hasn't been previously diagnosed in the family. So I would probably suggest that where there are three people in the family, they may benefit from a genetic assessment. And, you know, the genetic assessment that, that's occurring is evolving very, very quickly. So, you know, currently in many countries, people who have been diagnosed with bowel cancer before 50 are offered gene panel testing to see if there's a genetic diagnosis for that for that early age onset colorectal cancer. It's it's under 40 in the UK, actually, but, uh, you know, it's under 50 in, in Spain, for example, and um, in the US, it's under 50. And so increasingly people are being offered who have had a diagnosis of cancer genetic testing. So much of the useful information is probably in the relative who's been diagnosed with cancer. And, um, you know, obtaining information about that relative might be helpful. 
But you know, if we don't have that information or it's difficult to obtain, usually the person who get, who's referred because they've gone to the GP and said, "I've got family history. I want to, you know, have a colonoscopy." Usually, you know, they're pretty proactive and they can just ask their relative, "Have you had a genetic test? Do you have any information about having had a test? Have you been offered one?" And they they might have. But you know, failing that, you can only go on the best available information. You want to have the best information in order to be able to make the best decisions for your patients. But if the best information is there are three people in the family, you know, um, my father died when he was 40, 30 years ago. And, um, you know, I'm now 45. I've not had a colonoscopy. Plus, there are a couple of others in the family. Then actually, you might consider offering that person a genetic test on the basis that there are three people in the family. So there are various different ways. But I would say... First of all, if there's been some form of tumour testing in an infected individual, then they may be eligible. Secondly, their relative may have been offered testing. And thirdly, if there are three people in the family. And then the other thing to consider, I suppose, is we're we're talking about family history of cancer, but if someone has multiple adenomas, for example, if there are 10 or more adenomas, then they would also probably be eligible uh, in many cases. Uh, Certainly, they should be you know further assessed and be offered a, a discussion about genetic testing right and how co- uh, the tumor testing is new especially in the NDTs when it comes the last few years certainly in the UK how common is tumor testing done or access to these things in other countries in Europe is it very common or is it a very UK thing to do well so in 2017 the nice the NHS body recommended that all new cancer diagnosis colorectal cancer diagnosis undergo tumor testing um, and in 2020 the same for endometrial cancer actually although it was slightly ahead of the curve i would you know say that most european countries are doing this and this is partially because of an interest in lynch syndrome but also because it also refines oncological management so the um the test for this mismatch repair test is an essential part of oncological decision making because of a new relatively new form of uh treatment with a, something called checkpoint inhibitor immunotherapy and that really has you know huge implications for people with especially with metastatic colorectal cancer and as part of that the MR tumor status is a key po- kind of decision making um, point and in fact there's more and more of this kind of testing for a whole range of molecular markers and tumors that mean that people can be offered personalized care and this is not really much to do with Lynch syndrome, but actually it's the same test. And, you know, people can A, have oncological decision-making personalised on the basis of that test, but also may potentially have a diagnosis of Lynch syndrome, which needs to be followed up on the basis of the result of that test as well. So it's becoming more and more mainstream. And that the driver for that has been really from oncology in, in recent years, I would say. And therefore, it is much more widespread. And although the, the guideline in the UK was released in 2017 recommending this, really the driver has come over the last two or three years from oncology. And so there's much more of this kind of testing taking place around the UK, but also internationally. Kevin, I, I referred to the guidelines that you wrote for British Society. And on a practical note, you've classified those individuals have cat into different categories. You've classified them as average risk, moderate risk, and high risk individuals. 
And, uh, you know, listeners can refer to the guidelines and look at which individual fulfills or fits into each category. Uh, what maybe it's important to kind of make it clear is about this this issue about first degree, second degree relative. You know, you know, when you say two individuals with family history, two first degree relatives, what does that mean? Let's start by giving an example. Let's say if an individual has father diagnosed with colorectal cancer and father's brother. So that's one first degree relative. The second one is second degree, but was related to the father. So would that still be classed as moderate risk individual? That's a very good question. It's something that people often don't quite um, get right because, and that includes people who work, work in genetic departments. So it's not something, you know, that is really as straightforward as it should be really, I think. But the answer to your question is that there would be a cluster of two first-degree relatives in the family. And anyone who's a first-degree relative of one of the affected members would there, should therefore be offered surveillance accordingly. So they, they don't both need to be a, a first-degree relative of your patient. So if they're if their father and their uncle, they're in a what's called first-degree kinship, then the children of that uncle and the children of the brothers and sisters of your patient, as well as your patient, plus brothers and sisters of the uncle and the father and their parents, they're all eligible if they are under 75 years of age. And the parents are likely to be over 75, not always. People often do forget about the parents. And in fact, you know, for example, if you have a, you know, someone diagnosed with colorectal cancer at 35, then it's often the siblings, the brothers and sisters who come forward and they're worried about their risk of colorectal cancer. But actually, the main people whose risk is increased are the mother and father of that individual because you've got age added to the genetic risk and people who are more likely to get advanced adenomas of cancers are still the older people in that family. So um, you know, people sometimes forget about kind of looking up the generation as well. But um, yeah, so the affected individuals should be one genetic step away from each other and anyone who's eligible is... Um, just one genetic step away from a single affected individual in that family. So if, if you have two people or three people, they just need to be related to each other in a sort of a cluster. And anyone who's one step off of that cluster is uh, of relatives is eligible. because, And they're eligible because they're likely to benefit from additional surveillance as defined that way. Okay. So when you talk about you know, high risk, three individuals affected, as long as each one is a first degree relative of each other and the affected individual or individual in question is first degree relative of the affected individual members, and that is, you know, that is the relevant. Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. It's somewhat difficult to describe, I guess, in a podcast as well. Yes. It's quite nice to have um, a visual representation. You have to kind of think in your head of drawing a family tree and thinking how, how does that, that all kind of fit together. So it's the same, for example, if your mother and your mother's father, you know, you're a kind of a close relative of one affected individual, your mother, and you're a second degree relative of your grandparents, but still there are two people in the family who are related to each other who both had cancer and first degree kinship and uh, same situation. Um, so you don't need to, it doesn't need to be, for example, your dad and your brother, you know, you don't need to be first degree relative of both of those individuals as long as they are related to each other. 
Okay, that was the main thing, main question I had is, uh, does everyone needs to be first degree relative of each other, of individual in question? I definitely would recommend our listeners to uh, go through the guidelines, especially the chapters or the topic on family history. I think you made it very clear in the guideline, sort of the categories and things. And I'm very pleased about it. Now, Kevin, once you've made a uh, sort of, you've taken a full family history and you've kind of categorized them into different categories and you've kind of ruled out patients who need uh, testing for Lynch syndrome and all that, then when it comes to offering intervention for such individuals. What is the intervention would you offer? Sort of, you know, are there any alternatives to them? What's the best way to, uh, once you know their risk is higher, what is the best intervention that you would offer to such patients? Well, the gold standard is colonoscopy. You know, obviously, you know, for reasons that we're all aware of um, in terms of, you know, if you find a polyp, you can remove it at the time and, you know, uh, CT colonography, in my view, is an excellent test, diagnostic test to identify neoplasia in the colon. And you know, there's, a, there's an element of uh, having expertise in, in interpretation, but essentially, it, it um, you know, with, with uh, competent interpretation, is as good as colonoscopy for lesions down to about four millimeters in size. Um, now, obviously. There are, there are things you can't do, like you can't remove a polyp at the time. Um, and the, the other thing to consider in this population is a lot of genetic conditions that lead to you know, familial colorectal cancer are related to faulty DNA repair, including Lynch syndrome. And uh, if you expose an individual with faulty DNA repair to radiation, you're potentially increasing their lifetime risk of developing cancer as a consequence of radiation exposure. Now, there is some, um, you know, objective evidence of this from animal models that have been exposed to radiation, um, you know, animal models for things like Lynch syndrome, where they do develop more tumours as a consequence. There's no direct evidence of this in, in humans that have been exposed to radiation who have genetic syndromes. It would be extremely difficult as a study to try and try and do. But I think that what we don't want really is for someone to have 25 CT colonographies over their lifetime, for example, and um, so CT colonography may be if somebody's having a single, you know, screening episode where, you know, they're having a one-off colonoscopy and then they're entering a fit screening program, then a CT colonography might, might well be a you know, very useful and helpful test and wouldn't really, you know, have a significant impact on lifetime cancer risk due to radiation exposure. But if you're doing it over and over and over, over someone's lifetime, for, for example, if someone's due to have a five-yearly you know, screening procedure, and um, then actually you have to consider way that the benefits of having that screening procedure up against the risks of, of the radiation exposure. Other things like fit testing. So, you know, once again, fit is, is a big fan of fit, but in the right context, it's a really good test to detect colorectal cancer um, or patients who should have, you know, more invasive investigations because of a possible colorectal cancer diagnosis. It's not a good, great test to detect advanced adenomas. And um, our, you know, our focus really in these individuals is cancer prevention. And you know, where we know that the risk of developing cancer is increased, we, what we really want to be doing is removing the advanced adenomas to prevent that cancer. So FIT you know, isn't really quite 
vary it. And there have been a number of studies in people with family history with the use of FITS, but um, it, it's not really, there's not really convincing data about its utility in this kind of population. Um, I suppose they're the most studied kind of interventions. And there are other interventions like colon capsule. Well, there's no zero data for colon capsule at the moment in this population. MRI, no data at all uh, at the moment. Um, but maybe, you know, there will be some evolution and some co- or some combination. For example, you could, you know, someone could have fit alongside colonoscopy and you could space out the intervals by combining the two together in a different way. But that would need to be done in the context of a clinical trial and, and that data doesn't exist yet. So, you know, colonoscopy is the gold standard. And, you know, the quality of colonoscopy is extremely important as well. You know, sometimes the the lesions and some of these, you know, some of the genetic syndromes can be very subtle. People, you know, typically with a family history, they won't have polyposis. They won't have dozens of polyps. And, you know, there may be, you know, know, there are serrated polyposis syndrome families. And, you know, serrated polyps can be extremely subtle. In Lynch syndrome, the, you know, the polyps and the lesions can be very subtle as well. So, you know, it's, uh, I think colonoscopy performed to, to a high standard with good bowel preparation and complete examination of the colon is very important. CT colonography is, you know, acceptable, but probably best to avoid doing it repeatedly. Quick note, Kevin, on, uh, on the colonoscopy and uh, is there any role for, let's say, chromoendoscopy or an virtual chromoendoscopy or dye-based chromoendoscopy in such individuals? Or should they be on particular advanced endoscopist list who performs these procedures? Is there any evidence for use of them or a simple, good quality, white light endoscopy by an endoscopist with good key performance indicators are enough? I would probably agree with the latter. I mean, there are two randomized controlled trials of the use of dye spray um, chromoendoscopy in uh, in the context of Lynch syndrome, for example, that didn't didn't demonstrate superiority over white light examination. And it's worth noting that in, in those RCTs, the white light examinations and the dye spray, dye spray colonoscopies were performed by high performing colonoscopists, and therefore they already had a good baseline. So there may be some benefit of using dye spray where people's performance indicators are not, you know, as as high as they would be in the hands of an expert, perhaps because. Well, I suppose one of the benefits of dye spray is that it slows people down a little bit. They take a bit longer on extubation, um, particularly in the, in the proximal colon. And then there are other things like LCI. There's even a, a, one observational series of the use of AI and Lynch syndrome, and, um, and it hasn't demonstrated superiority over white light, although it's in a small, small population. There's another um, study, which is... Um, uh, completed recruitment, I believe, um, which is predominantly based in, in uh, Spain, but also, uh, also in Germany and Netherlands. And that is a timely study, and I think that will be probably releasing its results in the near future and may demonstrate some benefit of AI, for example. But really, what we what we what we really know is that good quality white light examination is is an excellent examination, and um, provided the bowel prep is, is good, and it, you know that's the key thing, really. Quick um, comment, Kevin, on uh, do you advise any lifestyle changes for patients uh, who come with family history? A, a, any any particular thing? What advice would you give? To, you know, just some mild, smaller lifestyle changes. Well, even if there is a genetic trait which is undiagnosed in the family, for example, or even if there is a genetic trait, cancer is is not driven by that genetic trait entirely, and it is modifiable through healthy lifestyle. 
so all the things that we normally advise our, our you know, patients or our population to try and help um, manage or reduce their lifetime risk, such as you know having a healthy diet with you know, plenty of fruit and veg and avoiding excess. You know, red meat and uh, maintaining normal BMI and exercising regularly as independent risk factors in the in the kind of average risk population. There's also direct evidence in people with family history or even in people with syndromes that these things are, are beneficial. So we should be emphasising these as you know. Some people think, well, what's the point if I have um, you know, this is running my family? I'm going to get cancer anyway. Well, you know, they may get cancer, but it may, may mean that they get cancer 10 years later or they may, may not get cancer if they live a healthy lifestyle, for example. And, you know, those cancers that have occurred in the family might have been you know, predominantly related to lifestyle factors uh, and not genetic factors. You know, in, in practice, actually, all cancer is genetic, but what drives those ch- genetic changes in the cells could be partially you know, you know, you may get a head start because of some of the genetic alterations that you're born with, but the impact of those can be uh, influenced, or you may get, you know, a new nidus of cancer kind of growth occurring as a consequence of lifestyle alongside of that. And in fact, all these factors are o- overlapping. And then there are also entirely random genetic events that occur um, that might lead to a cancer diagnosis. And we know from big modeling studies from John Hopkins that cancer overall is about a third of each of these things all overlapping with each other. So about a third of it is due to genetic factors, a third due to that are hereditary, although maybe not kind of a a syndrome necessarily, that may be due to lots of low penetrance genetic risk factors. A third is due to random genetic events um, that occur in cells, maybe in stem cells and early, early in development um, and they may account for a lot of kind of early age diagnoses that, that, um, of cancer. Uh, and then you know, a third is due to environmental risk. And actually, these things are all overlapping. It's a big Venn diagram. Um, so all of genetic risk and all of cancer risk is modifiable through a healthy lifestyle. Okay. Kevin, one of my uh, fellow colleagues takes regular aspirin um, just because he has family history. He's not been diagnosed to have any hereditary syndromes, anything like that. Uh, Just a quick comment. Is he right in taking that? What's the evidence? Or should we be advising patients to take regular aspirin or uh, other other COX inhibitors and things like that? So, I mean, aspirin is very interesting. And there is data from trials of people taking aspirin that the risk of cancer is reduced if they're taking aspirin for other reasons. And they've looked at their, you know, incidental cancer risk and particularly for colorectal cancer the risk of people who are taking aspirin compared to those who are not taking aspirin is you know reduced by about 15 percent but these are you know th- these are not cancer trials there was a trial in Lynch syndrome called cap2 that compared 600 milligrams of aspirin versus placebo and in that study in the long-term follow-up the risk of cancer may be there may be half as many colorectal cancers and that's um, that was you know really interesting, an important piece of work. So we do recommend it in the context of Lynch syndrome for that reason, but there haven't really been any studies of you know people taking aspirin uh, because they have a family history of colorectal cancer. So we don't really know the impact of taking aspirin in the situation, and therefore we don't r- routinely recommend it. There may be some benefit because there is some kind of observational data that suggests that taking aspirin reduces colorectal cancer risk, 
but um, it's definitely, a, I would say, a grey area, and it's not something that we are, you know, routinely recommending in people with a family history outside the context of Lynch syndrome. And then other drugs like non-steroidals, you know, I mean, there also is some evidence of perhaps that they, you know, that people may get fewer adenomas, for example, if they're taking non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. But also some of the, the early trials in FAP, there was some suggestion that um, the risk of cardiac events was increasing in people taking a non-steroidal, so we, we don't recommend them routinely. Um, but, you know, it would be very helpful if there was some sort of chemoprophylaxis where the, the benefit was clearly um, outweighing the risk. And you will always get adverse events in, in, a, in people who are taking medication and, you know, as you know, but um, you know, I think aspirin in, in the context of Lynch syndrome seems to be relatively safe and adverse events are rather infrequent. And people who are otherwise healthy is probably relatively safe because people who are otherwise healthy are less likely to get side effects, as it were. So um, I wouldn't necessarily be taking aspirin if I had a family history, um, but um, can't say for sure, obviously. Yeah, my colleagues definitely want to have, is happy with the risks and he thinks that he'll have a mortality benefit from it. So he just takes it anyway. Kevin, that's, that was really insightful into this very confusing topic, definitely for me. I would certainly advise the listeners to kind of refer to the guidelines uh, based on the categories, so how often to offer surveillance for such individuals and things. And thanks for making it clear, especially with uh, with some of the other uh, some nitty gritty aspects of this. Um, any uh, any last take home messages for the audience, Kevin? Well, I think there's uh, it's important to try and you know have some sort of a system for managing these patients. And you know um, what you don't want is just to offer colonoscopy just because someone has been referred to the family history. What you want to do is offer colonoscopy to people who are likely to benefit. So really taking a moment to assess that risk, assess the family history, and also to reassure patients who have a family history which is low risk, that actually the risk isn't necessarily all that increased and they, they, you know, they're probably not likely to benefit from a colonoscopy more than others. There's almost in every country there's a screening program and for these people they should be directed towards the screening program um, you know, without being backed into a corner. Most people generally are happy to choose to do so. Kevin, thank you so much for your valuable time and effort. Thanks for Muji. Thank you very much. Okay. Hope that's all right, Pradeep. <laughs>